The Dudes of Kung Fu podcast is brought to you by Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. In celebration of their newly launched WCI newsstand platform, Wing Chun Illustrated is giving listeners of the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast a free one-month all-access subscription. Go to wcinewsstand.com and click the register button in the upper right corner. Use voucher code FREE4U. That's F-R-E-E, the number four, and the letter U, all caps. Don't forget to activate your account by clicking the link in the welcome message. The Dudes of Kung Fu love Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. Dudes of Kung Fu. Please welcome your host, Alex Richter and Big Sean Madigan. Hey dude, how are you? doing well man it's uh super cool to see you again how you been yeah hanging in there hanging in there dealing with uh, some nonsense in my house here plumbing issues so if there's any official dudes of kung fu plumbers out there you're my new best friend <laughs> <laughs> but of course they have to be uh willing ready and able to go to staten island during this uh-uh. k- k- this phase of our of our existence <laughs> right you know and it's, it's so true even with like so i've had like now three plumbers in my house over the last three days and you know they all came in. I feel bad. They have the you know they, they have to wear the mask. I put a mask on while they're here. It's like it's a whole thing, you know, like having someone into your house at this point with this whole social distancing. You know, I had no choice. I had to have it. I have water pouring through my ceiling. But um, it's you know it's like it's weird having people come into your house in this whole thing right now. You know, it's different. Yeah, absolutely. You have to be kind of mindful of all sorts of different things. And even though uh, here in New York, obviously, we are kind of ground zero for a lot of this because of our population density. So we, uh, you know, we have to be extra careful. We're still looking ahead towards, you know, the time when we can reopen our schools. And then so one of the interesting things is like, you know, we have to come up with a plan now for like how how is that going to look like? You know, we're going to integrate. Obviously, we have to teach with some kind of social distancing, still stream online classes for people who can't come in but what was interesting is i was on um i was on twitter the other day and uh, obviously a lot of wing chun people follow me on twitter and in europe especially in germany uh the wing chun schools just started opening this week and they of course have to integrate social distancing and all that kind of stuff but what's interesting is to see the level of creativity that people are coming up with because obviously it's going to be a little bit more about solo work than partner work right away and so I saw, for example, in the Siolam Wang Chun, which is the uh, eternal spring, not the uh, um, praise spring. They were actually doing chisa with like, um, you know, like those swimming noodles, those foam swimming noodles. Yeah. yeah and they yeah, were yeah. like, but they used really long ones and they were like, you know, six feet away from each <laughs> other. And then, you know, one partner they were out in the park was like sticking. Wow. To them. And uh, in another Wing Chun school, they use some like uh, staffs, like six foot long staffs, not Wing Chun long poles. And they put right. a, they put a boxing glove at the end of it, and then they wrap the rest of the pole in some kind of like foam wrapping. And they're using that for kind of like some sparring and reaction training at distance. Like <laughs> that's actually a pretty cool idea, actually. Yeah, you know, it, it it adds a different dimension of timing and distance, and it's a lot 
I would actually think it's a lot quicker because there's a lot less telegraph when that thing right. is coming at you very short, right? And so they're actually doing things like that to kind of, you know, kind of go through a transition time before we can go back to kind of a more normal style of training. And um, I also thought maybe it would be a good idea to ask some of our um, dudes of Kung Fu listeners if uh, they've been coming up with any ideas about how to kind of do some kind of sparring training while still maintaining distance. And if they're coming up with things in their school, if you guys have come up with anything, please, you know, post something in the comments on our dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page or on Instagram or whatever. would love to hear what you guys have to say about, uh, you know, uh, coming up with new uh, creative ways to train in, in this new kind of normal. You know, you said something, and we didn't they didn't plan this. You just said the word sticky or sticking, and it popped into my head. I know we spoke about this once before, but it, we have so many new listeners. I, I really want to talk about this for a second, if you don't mind. Sure. When I, I, Bouillot was very specific, I'm told, was very specific in that it was sticking hands as opposed to sticky hands. So that it, he didn't like the term sticky hands. That it to him it connotated like your arms were sticky as opposed to sticking hands. When you talk about sticking, what what are you asking your students to stick to? Like what what's the thought process behind that? Like I know in, with me with JKD, I tend to say, I tend to teach it as stick to the core that to focus your energy and I when I say sticking hands I say I mean it in that all the energy should be focused on the core and that's what we're sticking to and but I really want to get your thoughts on that like why do you think in your like I'm not I'm not gonna say why do you think Moyat said that that's silly but like what why would you um, if you agree that it's sticking hands rather than sticky hands what would you see as the difference and what are you asking your students to stick to? Well, um, well, quite honestly, the reason I'm, I mean, obviously I cannot speak for him. I never met him. Right, uh, right, right. I, 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 um, but what I would surmise from that statement, which I would wholeheartedly agree with him, um, is that um, because in Cantonese, qi sao is a verb. It's not a noun. <laughs> so, oh, okay. So, T to T means. So, I actually write about this in my upcoming book. Um, I, I just, um, I'm designing it right now. The book's already uh, written. It's called The 15 Qi Cell Fundamentals. And the, the proper translation for T is actually clinging, um, to cling which is a very different connotation, especially if you think of like cling wrap or something or, you know, cling right. film or something, right? It's a lot more kind of actively kind of getting onto something rather than, um, yeah, sticky, which almost seems kind of passive. It's like you are you're accidentally sticky because you didn't wash your hands or something, right? Um, right, right. As opposed to like you're actively trying to do something. So um, when when you think about it from a Chinese perspective, the term qi sao is actually a verb. So it makes sense of sticking you're turning it into a verb, whereas sticky, it's, it's like almost you're describing a thing, right? Right um, now. So, yeah, yeah so, so that makes a lot of sense. Now, for me, um, qi sao is done a couple different ways depending on the situation. If you are um, relatively aggressive with your strikes and, and or relatively dominant over your specific partner, then 
cheese out is just essentially done only when your opponent's arm is in your way of getting to the target, which is going to the core, right? Yeah. So you're, you're trying to hit them. They, they, they stop you from going forward. Now you have a moment when you are sticking. But that is kind of consequential sticking from you're trying to hit and they interfere with you. But there's another type of sticking that I teach, which is like a survival sticking hands when you are getting your ass beat and you need to stick to someone to keep them from hitting you, right? And this is a very, diff a very different mindset from you're trying to hit somebody and you run into their arms and you move around it and you keep hitting them, the more kind of dominant style of Chisao. And then there's a more like, okay, I need to keep this person from hitting me, so I'm going to cling onto their arms a little bit and kind of smother them and stick with good forward intention so it kind of depends on how the particular chisao needs to be applied in that moment but either one i would still use the term clinging and i wrote in my book i'm trying to stop saying sticking hands but it's like so many years of just reading it in magazines and it being you know that's kind of the way sure. people hear it right so even in the book it's writing a book is very cathartic because you're trying to like exorcise your own demons while you write a book and i'm like i even write in the book i'm trying to change to clinging but i'm still not doing a good job with it right so i'm kind of Im imploring my readers uh, who might be newer to the art and not as susceptible to years of conditioning to maybe call it clinging arms and also to use the term arms rather than hands so in cantonese can mean the hand it can also mean the arm and it depends on the context there are certain moves like pak sao means slapping hand because you slap with the hand. But bong sao, you actually stick with the arm, not the hand. So that's right. why so that's why sometimes when we translate things into English, sometimes you should say wing arm slapping hand. It depends like we can have a little more nuance in English, but uh, in it should be understood as clinging arms, not uh, sticking hands. So, or sticking arms would be better than, than sticking hands, right? So, so that, right. that's just what I got to say about that. Uh, very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Good. Thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. Uh, um, I, I always love it when you kind of talk about the late Sifu Moyat and, and those kind of things. I really wish I had the chance to have met him because he definitely seems like someone who was, you know, very, um, uh, very faithful to to what Grandmaster Yipman taught him, and uh, you know was very much about kind of passing that on in a very traditional way. I actually know his son. Uh, I've met him uh, before and got along really well with him. And oddly enough, I've actually traveled with Moyat's daughter-in-law, who is the uh, the, the the wife of Moyat's son, um, because right, right. her mother is like uh, big in the movie circles in New York. She's a very famous Chinese casting director who pretty much casts for all anything that's shot in New York, from Gotham to any kind of movie. Um, basically, uh, uh, William Moy's mother-in-law is like the woman for that. And oh, so, wow, okay. Yeah, and so I happen to... Uh, to know her and we traveled to California when uh, Lo Meng from the Shaw Brothers films was there because she's good friends with them so I've actually oddly enough traveled with Moyat's daughter-in-law <laughs> and, and, and so but like so I know like a lot of people kind of around the Moyat circle but sure, unfortunately sure. Uh, I never had a chance to meet him so yeah that's interesting it's interesting he's such a small yeah. world yeah absolutely absolutely so uh, we had a couple I actually posted on Instagram uh, earlier, like if people had some, you know, things they wanted us to talk about. And so we uh, obviously when people 
point point out stuff for us to talk about sometimes they're short things sometimes they're like we could spend three episodes on something so we have a, a couple things i want to talk about maybe a main topic but before we get to that we had a couple kind of uh, specific questions that uh, one about jkd you wanted to answer and then also one from one of our patreon supporters named john rapley who specifically asked me something about uh, wing chun do you want to talk about that jkd topic uh you know why don't you go first and i'll do the jkd thing and and then we'll go back to the Wing Chun. Okay, never mind. I'll talk. Yeah. So, all right. So, um, for those who have heard me tell the story on the podcast, and I've told it a few times, my first ever phone call with Steve Golden, I make reference to um, one of the five ways of attack, uh, progressive and direct attack. And we go through my understanding of it for a little bit. And um, on it, I in talking to Steve that day for the first time ever, he had asked me what progressive indirect attack was, and I had said something to the effect of, it's to create an opening. And Steve said that that was a very good answer, but completely wrong. <laughs> and, and, and to show me why it was wrong, he said that he pointed out, I should say, that if the reason for having progressive and direct attack was to create an opening. Well, then it's redundant because every stance already has an opening. That if you're looking at a guy and he has three openings on him as it is, why the need to create a fourth opening when you already have three there? So I, I you know, I, I used, I tell that story to point out how I how very little I knew about the five ways of attack, specifically in Jeet Kune Do as a whole. And someone wrote me on Facebook, and uh, he is a Jeet Kune Do uh, student, and asked me not to use his name. We correspond quite often. But he asked me, how has my understanding of progressive and direct attack changed since that conversation? And would I go into it a little bit? And I will go into it a little bit. Um, but to, to get to where my understanding is, you have to understand a very specific distinction between create an opening and create an opening line. And it, this is not semantics. This is a difference. Um, you know, a student of mine a long time ago wrote an essay about it, uh, Gary Hoyd, and it was perfectly expressed it in, in, in the terms of a window opening and closing. We want to create, to, to, if I throw up, if I see an opening, okay, say I'm sparring with a guy, I'm moving with a guy, and he has his hands low, his face is opening, and I attack his face. There's an opening, I attack the opening. He now has to close that opening. He sees my, he sees my attack, and he closes that opening. He doesn't have to like change direction. He doesn't have to do anything other than close the opening to deal with my attack. What progressive indirect attack wants to initiate a new opening line, meaning you want to take something and turn it into an opening and attack to the area that the hand is leaving. So if you, if you think of it this way, if there was a window that was opening and closing, 
and I actually throw a pebble through the through the window while it was opening without breaking the glass. Would you throw the pebble while the window was open and about to close, or while the window was closed and just starting to open? That idea of the window just starting to open is is when you would obviously throw the pebble because that's when you want to attack an opening line because for that line to now be closed the person has to stop and change directions as opposed to just close the line and this is what we talk about when we talk about in five ways of attack is you want to attack in a way that you're going to create an opening line and attack into the opening line so that it's harder for the person to close the line you know that's it's a different way of looking at this idea of an opening and an opening line one is something stagnant and one is something dynamic and moving and in martial arts and in fighting we have to always think that dynamic and think moving so with our footwork with our body language with our hands with our legs you want to force a person to create an opening line for you to attack into so i want to get the guy not i don't want to attack a person's face whose hands are down by his waist i want to attack a person's face whose hands are up by his chin but he's going to lower his hands for me i want to get him to lower his hands and attack him while his hands are lowering that's when i go for his face now how to do that that's a whole art form. That's not easy to do. That's, you know, Chikundo University. But that's really where it's at when it comes to progressive and earth attack. And I should say, all of the five ways of attack. The five ways of attack are, in my opinion, some of the highest level thinking in JKD. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I'll deal with, you know, the exception of maybe distance timing and rhythm. And we have to look at the five ways with this idea of opening lines, dealing with reactions, instead of dealing with stagnant open lines, open holes. And um, what I'm going to plan on doing, that this is going to be part of the whole JKD Blueprint series on the, for the Patreon supporters. I'm going to go very in-depth into all this. Awesome. But since, since the person asked me the question, I thought I would put it out there. Cool. All right. And then um, we also got a question from one of our Patreon supporters named John Rapley. He actually a he actually asked a uh, Leung Ting specific question um, about the Leung Ting Chi Sao sections and whether I still taught them. And um, yeah, apparently his uh, Sifu had once learned from Sifu Leung Ting and then later started learning from uh, Yip Ching. But uh, because he quite liked the Leung Ting Chi Sao sections, he still taught them. So, um, yeah, this is, uh, uh, well, there's always a long answer and a short answer to everything. Um, so the, uh, and this might also interest you, Sean, I don't know, but, uh, you know, one of the things that Sifu Leungting did was he standardized his uh, Chi Sao programs in such a way that, you know, the promise was that if you learned Wing Chun in Hong Kong or, or Germany or in the U.S. <clears throat> under his banner that there would be some kind of, you know, high level of standardization of the programs. Um, and, you know, what you would learn at the Buji level for Chi Sao or the wooden dummy level that all these things would be standardized. So what he did is he created like 
like kind of a simple sequence which was this there it for the sake of learning the individual movements but then once you learn the movements you then put them into your sparring right so the idea is of course not to do sequences with your partner those were just um uh, those were actually for the instructors to learn so that they knew so they wouldn't forget to teach everything individually to their students the problem is that a lot of wt instructors started to you know as you know probably from jkd with you know certain drills and things like that that the drills become more important than the thing you're supposed to learn absolutely and so right what ends up yeah so what ends up happening is then you have kind of like uh how maybe in jeet kune do you might have uh in certain lines of jeet kune do you might have like the church of this drill or the church of that drill well in in many pockets of Leung Ting wing chun um, they are so enamored with these chi sao sections so as to have almost missed the entire point of what they're for one of the things that was really interesting to me and i'll just kind of keep it kind of short so i i don't really teach the chi sao sections anymore because the chi sao sections were designed for seminars when sifu leung ting would come from hong kong to germany for a week or two weeks he would need to dump all this information on them give them something they could practice and then the idea was that he would come back and they would have learned all these things and got better at it and then he can show them the next layer or whatever right um but the problem is uh many people started to just get really into how many versions they knew and 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 was this the real one that the real one whatever and um you don't actually need chi sao sections when your instructor knows all of the Leung Ting chi sao. Um, your instructor can just teach you all the stuff in sparring and in drills. The sections were really only designed for seminar instruction. And because my school has now been established for 18 years, um, my students are there. It's not like they're only going to see me once uh, every six months. They can come and train with me every day. So um, the usefulness of the chi sao sections have actually um, they're they're kind of antiquated. We don't need them anymore now that the schools are established. So I teach all the stuff that is in the chi sao sections, but I don't really teach the chi sao sections anymore because they're kind of a vestigial organ of a WT that is uh, long since passed. So. <clears throat> that's that's perfect. That's brilliant. Because you know in, in JKD we have something similar with um, with focus mid drills. Uh, one, you know one two drills and one three drills and. And um, people ask, like, oh, do you teach? You know, they'll come from another school and say, oh, can we work on one three drills tonight? Like, uh, jab hook drills. And I say, oh, we can work jab hook. But no, they want to work on a specific progression of drills that's taught in, um, in Guru Dan's lineage, which, I mean, they're brilliant drills. But I believe, like you say, the drills were created... So Guru Dan can go from school to school to school in seminar and and, and, and teach a, a viable, excellent product. Um, you know what I mean? And it kind of be, if you have a, a regular school that you're training in, you really don't need those drills because you're going to cover all that material anyway. Those, gr- those, drill, those, those drills are great for, for teaching an idea and giving the the seminar participants something to work on but if you're if you if you understand the content you don't need that specific drill to teach you can come up with any drill to teach that skill that you know the, the idea of the drill is to teach a, a a developed skill and if you could teach the developed skill you don't need that drill 
Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, for me, I had a mind blowing moment because when I came from Germany, mm -hmm. I knew, you know, all these cheese house sections and I was very proud. Actually, I was it's very funny. You, you ever like think about what you were like 20 years ago or what you thought about martial arts 20 years ago and you just cringe. You're like, oh, my God, like that right. past version of myself is embarrassing me right now in the future. Right. And so. uh I remember when I came back from Germany, I was very proud of the fact that I knew many different versions of all the different sections. I like of the, even the first cheese house section, which is the most fundamental. I'm like, yeah, I, I can do that thing seven different ways. And I was very proud about that. Right. Like, look how much I know. Right. And I, I had Sifu Lengting in my car once. I think it was probably the very first time he came to my school. And we were on the subject of sections and he told me or he just said to me in a very matter of fact kind of way, uh, this, don't teach the sections to the students. They don't need to know them. Only the instructor needs to know the sections because they work as a catalog of all the things you're going to go over with the students in the class. Like you remember, OK, I have to show them this. I have to do this. We've got to do this inspiring and that it's not at all meant to be. Oh, you need to learn these movements strung together in a sequence. He said they literally only created them for the instructors so that it was almost like an onomatopoeia, like an easy way to recall 10 things. Like if I taught you 10 words, um, you might struggle to remember them. But if I put those 10 words in a sentence you could remember sure. it much more easily but the important thing is you know what those 10 words mean not the sentence right and right. so um and so when he told me that that like literally destroyed my entire world and i realized i had to kind of basically start over with a new idea and it took me a while actually to adjust like i knew it but it like it, it didn't quite like i wasn't able to put that into action right away but now i i pretty much don't teach any sections anymore i just teach programs and i have like you know i have certain exercises and then mm. they got to do those exercises in sparring and i don't really have like all these kind of things anymore right you know it's funny two things from that um, one was a really embarrassing situation. I, uh, in trying to remember what Steve Golden was teaching me with Chisau, I took very specific notes in that, like, he would have me attack and would do certain things, and I would write down in order what he was doing so that I could repeat it later. And... So later on in creating my notes, I, of course, made it like, you know, Chisau attacks, one through ten kind of thing, you know? Right, right. And started teaching it like that. I taught it, and I, I, I now started teaching it like that, and I taught it to one of my students, and I said, like, okay, listen, and I, and I, and I numbered them, you know, Chisau attack one, Chisau attack two. And where'd you learn this from? I learned it from Steve Golden. Okay. Chisau attack three, Chisau attack four. Well, this student goes to a Steve Golden seminar and asks the question, in Chisau attack five, <laughs> what are you like? And Steve looks at him and says, what are you talking about? Because he knows the guy trains with me, you know? Right. Because what are you talking about? And he says, well, you know, Sean says that in Chisau Attack 5, you do this, but I'm confused with the footwork. And and Steve was like, I have no idea what Chisau Attack 5 is. Can you show me what you're trying to accomplish? And we'll, 
And I remember both of them calling me up that night separately saying like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. That is so funny. And, yeah. I, and it was, it was an embarrassing situation for me. You know, it was like, um, I, cause I, my, my heart was good. My intentions were good. Yeah. But I was doing exactly what you're saying. I took the drill and made the memorization of these drills more important than the skill development involved. And, yeah. and, and the, other, the other thing I want to say real quick was when you just said like, when you think about you know yourself 20 years ago and it's cringeworthy, I know I go through the same exact thing myself. And I love to point this out to people is, I wonder what Bruce Lee would look at for himself 20 years, say he had lived another 20 years, at the stuff he was doing at the epitome, of, you know, at the pinnacle of his training right before he died, what would he look at as cringeworthy? Because right. there's no way he would have stayed the same. One hundred percent. You know, no living, breathing, intelligent person has the same opinion on things for 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 thirty years. Right. You have, you know, you change. You, you know, your life experience makes you change. And I, I, I love to know, like, what would Bruce Lee look back on twenty years in the future and say, "Wow, what the hell was I thinking with that?" Because I know myself. My God, twenty years ago, I was a fucking mess. I thought I was the shit. But I right. was a mess. Right, right, right. I think the first step is to realize when you realize you're not the shit, then that's when you start to realize that, okay, <laughs> right, maybe right. maybe now I'm slowly starting to come on to something. You know, it's very interesting that you say that because, yeah, think about it. Had Bruce Lee uh, not, not died when he did and kept going on, I mean, think about how far ahead of his time he was for the time period that he learned in. I mean, I, I don't mean to disparage the American martial arts scene in the late 60s, but when you watch what a lot of those karate guys were doing in the 60s, I mean, they were moving right. like freaking robots. And it was all about point karate and all that kind of stuff. And Bruce was essentially one of the first guys to go, you know, we should do something more like kickboxing, right? And, right, right. And, 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 and to integrate these things and how just far ahead he was, but to think that he would have stopped, you know, I mean, just imagine like, uh, and again, this isn't necessarily to, to say like, Oh, well, obviously he would have gone the MMA route or something like that, but it would be interesting. I mean, I, I think he would have definitely been very interested in the kind of grappling revolution in martial arts. And I think that there's so many things in there that he, he would have evolved and he would have gone back and looked at that stuff he was doing back then and probably cringe, which is why it's so funny that there's some people who are like so into teaching like a kind of a museum piece of what Bruce Lee did in a certain time period. Look, Bruce Lee was very much motivated by his ego in terms of how he looked and how well he did things. He just something about his movies. He did not want the movie The Big Boss or Fist of Fury to or or even Way of the Dragon to be shown in the U.S., because he felt that those movies were just vehicles for him to gain some stardom in Hong Kong so he could come back to the U.S. and make real movies. He was actually straight up embarrassed by The Big Boss, like in terms of the poor quality of it. And wow. even though even though Way of the Dragon was kind of his baby, he knew that it was not quite up to the standard of a Western movie. And he actually got very mad with Raymond Chow when Raymond Chow sold international rights to show those films like in America. And because he was very much about like... Um, you know, he didn't, he only wanted people to see him at his best. So you can imagine someone who has that kind of attitude is constantly trying to get better. 
and and so it, it it just goes I think almost without saying without even a lot of speculation that he would have been in a very different place from a martial arts perspective five years later ten years later you know right so, oh, absolutely yeah you know it's, it's it's one of the I don't want to call it frustrations but it's it is something I find odd about a lot of the original JKD people first of all let me state people are welcome to train any way they want to train. I, you know, that's none of my business. And if your goal, if your passion is to train exactly the way Bruce Lee trained, well, you know what? You go right ahead and go on with your bad self and have fun. That's what life's all about. But to think that Bruce Lee would not have changed what he was doing is silly. And to think that Bruce Lee would not have at least looked at MMA is beyond ridiculous because I know you a lot of you folks have this fantasy in your head about how Jeet Kune Do is strictly about street fighting and not sports because you can't kick a guy in the balls and poke him in the eye uh-huh, I get that um, if you look at what is supposedly the makeup of Jun Fan Kung Fu and Jeet Kune Do originally with it being Wing Chun, Western boxing, and European fencing. Well, you know, two of those are sports. You know, fencing and boxing are sports. So, I to, to say that Brucey would have discounted anything sport-related is just silly. You know, to say that Brucey would say, oh... He's not going to get involved in MMA or look at MMA because it's sports. Well, you know what? He got involved in boxing. And I'm sorry, that's a combat athletic sport. I, I just, I just, when I hear guys say, oh, I don't do any grappling because Bruce Lee didn't do any grappling, ridiculous. Or even worse are the guys, well, there was 26, and I'm making up that number, 26 um, judo moves that Bruce Lee learned from Gene LaBelle. So we incorporate those. Well, then you're a bigger moron than I thought. If you're only going to stick with very specific judo moves that Bruce Lee learned from Gene LaBelle as your grappling program, that's beyond ridiculous. You know, um, this idea of like, oh, my grappling consists of poking in the eyes and breaking fingers. And I'm sorry, folks, that that's not real. That's not real life. Yes, that may work. Against a non-grappler. You know, the idea of like, oh, you're going to tear and rip and bite and break fingers. Yeah, maybe against some drunk in the street, that will work. Go go right ahead. But if you tried that against a guy who knew how to grapple, he's going to eat you up. Because he can do that too. And he knows how to put himself in a position where you can't stop him from doing it to you. You know, that's the idea is this idea, you know, they have this idea of um, positional control in, in grappling that I don't think most people understand. That they, they, they can control the position and transition from position to position in a safe way to take a total control of the situation. That if you think you can sit there and just snap a finger on a grappler, you're, you're in for a surprise. Because you may get one of his fingers, but then he's going to take your arm. 
and he's going to take it home and show his girlfriend. Look, this is the arm of the guy who broke my finger tonight. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's you. If your goal is to do exactly what Bruce Lee did, then you know what? That's a wonderful goal. Have a great time. Be happy. Enjoy yourself. If your goal is to be the most complete fighter you can be in in the in the way probably Bruce Lee was thinking about himself and his own progression, then you have to look at some form of grappling. You have to look at that. You have to understand that there's a, a huge stand-up aspect to your fighting, but then there's a contact and a ground fighting, you know? There's a stand-up grappling and there's a ground fighting. Now, maybe your ground fighting is going to consist of the best and safest ways to get back up, and I think that's wonderful. But to do that, you'll have to understand positional control, and you'll have to understand how to safely get up. You'll have to understand how to create distance, how to take away distance, how to attack, how to transition. These are all things that are relatively fundamental in most grappling programs. I'm not saying you have to go and become a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. But you owe it to yourself. If your goal is to be a good fighter, if your goal is is to absolutely look at some form of stand-up wrestling, some sort of Greco-Roman or American wrestling, and some sort of ground fighting, judo, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Jiu-Jitsu, you know, that you have some kind of well-rounded structure to your martial arts. And I'm not saying you have to lose all your JKD. Not at all. But open up your minds. You know, and when when instructors tell you, oh, they don't do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or ground fighting because Bruce Lee didn't do it, I, I look at that as something that scared me away. If they say, oh, I don't do that because I'm not interested in that, so, but if you want to explore that area, you should, go right ahead. But to say that you don't need it because Bruce Lee didn't do it is ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. Also <clears throat> considering, uh, you know, when, when you started uh, to mention that of the Jun Fun Kung Fu, uh, you know, you have Wing Chun, boxing and fencing. And of those three, two of them are sports, right? Um, it also uh, reminded me that... Um, uh, you know, Bloody Elbow, which is an MMA, um, they're an MMA website. They actually had an article about the only guy to officially fight Bruce Lee, uh, because obviously we know that most of Bruce Lee's fighting experience either came through challenge matches at a school, like with Wong Jack Man, or maybe on the set of Enter the Dragon, or, you know, the fights that he had when he was a young punk doing Wing Chun, you know, fighting with these other guys. But he did have one official boxing match when he was 18. And um, the guy that he fought, um, his name was Gary Elms, and he uh, Bruce Lee beat him uh, decisively um, in points. And that guy was the champion at that time. So what's interesting is that uh, specifically Bruce Lee, his only actual, you know, recorded fight that he, where he could have a record was, in fact, a boxing match. And a boxing if, match, right. Yeah. And if you um, for those who are interested um, bloodyelbow.com uh, the article is called Requiem for a Fighter meet the only man to officially fight Bruce Lee and Gary Elms the guy who Bruce Lee defeated um, passed away about two years ago and didn't really talk much about it but um, he was apparently the um, 
inter-school because in Hong Kong, you know, Hong Kong was a British colony. So you had a lot of British boys go into private schools. And a lot of these guys, you can imagine, were kind of rich, spoiled kids. And some of them were kind of little tough guys. And so uh, Gary Elms was the... Um, he was the inter-school individual boxing champion in 1958. So this is roughly about a year or maybe the same year that Bruce Lee came to the States. And um, he faced against Lee. And this was at, um, I think it was at St. George. Yeah, St. George's School, which is a very famous uh, prep school in, uh, in Hong Kong. And uh, Bruce Lee won decisively on points and beat his 17-year-old opponent. And um, yeah, so it's a very, very interesting article. So I would just suggest you guys go ahead and read that. It's really cool. That is cool. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I'm going to go log into that tonight and read that. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's pretty cool. Yep, absolutely. So um, we had uh, one kind of main topic somebody wanted us to uh, talk about tonight. In fact, um, I wish I knew the person's name, but um, he goes on Instagram by trumpet dude <laughs> so i apologize okay. when when we get these requests on instagram i only know what their instagram handle is right um so uh the question was basically you know uh wasn't really so much a question but maybe just kind of a topic to discuss which was about adapting wing chun to various body types uh for example someone is you know how does a shorter person do wing chun compared to a taller more stout stoutly built person um so i thought that might be a good uh a good topic to start with so um and i'm sure this obviously crossover to jkd although oddly enough jkd is a style that's all about adaptation but i often see people are just like you got to do lead leg sidekick and the, the straight lead and it seems like everyone seems to just kind of want to do the same thing or or do i have a or did i read that wrong is there an adaptation for body types in jkd absolutely so there's I like that, that 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 phrase too, an adaptation. I can't say it, but I like it. <laughs> adaptation. So I, I, if you look at JKD, at the way I look at JKD, and you say to yourself, okay, so just because you and I are both going to do lead leg side kick, straight lead, the same type of footwork, just because our tools are the same, it doesn't mean our, I don't know the right word, style is the same. You know, um... There's guys that there's okay. So let's say running backs in the NFL, they're doing the same. Two different running backs in the NFL are doing the same exact thing. They both run with the ball tucked under their arm. They have their goal is to get over the goal line. They're no, no one's doing anything different than the other person. But there's different styles of running. There's different ways of handling themselves. It's just who they are as a person comes out um same thing with combat athletics so if you look at like muhammad ali has a way of fighting just like mike tyson has a way of fighting they're both using the same tools jab cross hook uppercut and footwork but the way they use them is completely different so that whole idea of Add what is specifically your own is your personality and who you are and your body type. So obviously, if, if Alex and I were classmates in, in a Jeet Kune Do class, we may learn the same tools, but we would fight in completely different ways. You know, I would probably be more like a manly fighter. 
and he'd be more like, no, it's just, you know, listen, I, I'm a, I'm a, a, a 50, 55 year old fat man. And Alex is, I'm going to wait, 35? 42. Alex is a 42 year old guy in perfect shape. So there's two different ways of, it's just two different modes of mobility, you know? So we'd have to adopt the same lessons in completely different ways. You know, I tend to hunch my shoulders over and I, I tend to take I tend to take one or two blows when I'm when I'm sparring. Because when I when I get to you, I'm gonna crush you. It's just it's just different ways of of dealing with situations in in but using the same tools and strategies, you know, just using them in a different way. And I and I think um when it, when it, when it comes to a big guy versus a small guy, when you said that, instantaneously in my head, I a video that I saw many years ago. God, I'm so old. Many years ago, a video popped into my head of an old Jesse Jesse Glover video that he had a student who looked like he was six five doing chisau with a guy who would look like he was five five. You know, and like. And they I've were seen, doing I've seen that video. I know which video you're talking about. I, I had those non-classical Gong Fu videos. I, I had Exactly I had right. Yeah. As soon as you said that, that's what popped into my head. And, you know, I guess it was uh, for training purposes, they, they, they find a, uh, a meeting of the minds kind of place on where to train. But it was the same tools just used differently yep. for, them to, for them to fight. You know, and I, I think that I think too much is made of oh he's i have to do a completely art than that guy because of body shape two people could be the same could do the same art and be completely different style of fighters again i was afraid to use the word style because people get very dogmatic and you know like the style means a specific thing and i'm afraid of stepping on toes but there's just simply ways, different ways of doing the same thing. You know, if you if you look at even just language in the English language, there's 26 letters that make up words, but there's so many different ways of people expressing themselves. Right. You know what I mean? There's only so many notes on a musical scale, and you have jazz, the blues, rock and roll, and and everything else that goes along with it that just sound completely different, all from the same notes. You know, so we have to understand that it's not like a, a new way of doing things. It's just, it's it's just taking an established system and personalizing it for yourself. And I would assume it would be the same thing with with Wing Chun, right? I mean, yeah, I think so too. And I also think that there's kind of an additional thing outside of just the general body types, right? Because obviously you have. You have tall people, you have short people, you have people who are kind of stoutly built and people who are like more wiry and you have that both whether they're tall or short. You have short people who are very stout and you have tall people who are very thin, right? Um, I think the other thing that people tend to kind of, you know, minimize because it's usually just about kind of a tall short is um, also the temperament of the person, right? Because if you think about like in boxing, you basically have like four different types of boxers, right? You have like a swarmer, the guy who just swarms and keeps constant pressure. You have like kind of the 
the guy who kind of boxes from the outside, you know, who kind of picks you apart with jabs and kind of keeps, kind of stays kind of rangy. You have a slugger who comes in, you know, not quite like the swarmer with pressure, but just comes in just swinging bombs. And then you have the, you know, the very technical kind of, you know, slick boxer who's moving around and slipping and hitting and kind of, you know, has some of all of those attributes in one, right? So if you think about, like, if you have, like, okay, a swarmer, a kind of distance fighter, a slugger, and then, like, a quintessential boxer, those are also four types of temperaments, right? Because there are certain people that no matter how much, like, certain types of boxers, no matter how much their coach tries to turn them into, you like that very fine footwork moving head movement type guy this guy's a slugger you know what i mean and that's the way the guy's gonna fight right you can improve certain uh adaptive or defensive qualities but generally you got a slugger here and the other guy is a swarmer and the other guy likes to keep people away with his jabs right so ultimately your your temperament i think also indicates a lot about how you use your body type when you do your martial art as opposed to it just being a matter of uh, you, so you're short you have to fight this way right so you, you you could be a short swarmer or a short slugger um just like you could be you know a tall swarmer or slugger right and so that would you know you would you have to basically accumulate experience to learn how to use your tools in a way that suits your temperament and your body type. And that's the beautiful thing about martial arts when they're done correctly. Like you said about the football players, right? You know, all the people are doing essentially all the same things, but they all do it a little bit differently. And so, but ultimately the aim is the same, right? And that's why I like to see, for example, MMA, because MMA is is such a great way to kind of see what happens when you put these different styles together and not just like striker versus grappler, but like, you know, how does somebody who likes to fight on the outside and, you know, use lots of jabs and rangy stuff deal with someone who's a very heavy pressure fighter? You know, like those are the interesting things that I love to watch MMA for because you get to see these things like in a pressure cooker. Right. And then you get to learn a lot about these things through the experience that you're seeing, not just looking at this guy versus that guy, because you're, you're also looking at different body types within a weight class and different styles of fighters within a weight class. And it's very interesting to see uh, sometimes people don't do use their style the way you expect them to use it. And, and uh, that's the innovative part I love about martial arts. Right. I mean, if you take if you take some some fighters have a, a what do they call it, like a glass chin. Some yes. fighters can get punched in the face all day long. If you're an intelligent fighter and you know which one you are, you could use that. You know, just like and if you if you have the ability to take a couple of punches, you know, maybe you'll you're you'll you're willing to swallow a punch or two to to, to get in on a guy. Right. If you're have a, a glass chin and you know you can't take a punch well, then maybe you're going to adopt a style that's a little more to the outside and more of a counterpuncher and things like that. But again, it doesn't mean that the techniques themselves are going to change. It just means that the way you're going to use the techniques, the way you're going to use the strategy changes. You know, that's that's where I think this whole... Add what is specific... In Jeet Kune Do, there's, there's a, an expression, um, absorb what is useful, reject what is useless, and add what is specifically your own. And I think that one of the um, biggest, one of the biggest misconceptions in JKD is that idea of 
Ed would have specifically your own, people tend to use that to add more martial arts into the equation as opposed to it looking at add who you are to the system. You know what I mean? Like Alex is learning something, I'm learning something. We could be learning the same exact thing, but we have to add what is specifically our own, our body type, our our personalities, our abilities, our inabilities. You know what 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 things that our attributes. That is us adding what is specifically our own. We have to bring our personalities to the game. Do you know what I mean? This is this is what helps us absorb what is useful and reject what is useless. Right. You know what I mean? Like that's it's not so much like oh absorb what is useful. Take these fifteen techniques from Jake that you like. Yes. Reject what is useless. I'm gonna throw out the rest of the system. And add with a specific of my own, I'm going to add these 15 other martial arts to fill in for the, for the crap I threw out before. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's, this, it's just, there's just a better way of looking at that expression, folks. Yeah. You know, there's a better way of looking at it. There's, you know, if you look at GKD, you're going to absorb what is useful to you. You're going to reject what is use, useless to you. And you're going to add you to the equation. You're going to add your personality, your dynamics, you know, your fundamental physiques and abilities and attributes to create the style of fighter that you need to be. I remember one time I was uh, grappling with a guy named Paul. And he, he I remember it was the first time I ever had something called neon belly mm. used against me. And it was, it was the most horrifying thing in the world to not be able to breathe with this guy's knee right into the core of my belly. Yeah. And I remember watching him. He was just such a good guy, too. I remember watching him, and I would say six or seven out of ten people that he grappled with that day, he ended up with knee on belly. And I just said to myself, oh, is that something you're working on for today? And he said to me, he goes, you know, it's just something I always find myself going to. It's just part of who I am. I just feel so comfortable and my body always seems to slide into this. Mm. And I remember thinking like, wow, that's that's like he kind of found himself in the system of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You know, he just found a way to... And I started thinking about guys who they always... And you start watching MMA fights at UFC... And they'll say, like, oh, this guy's finished 15 different fights with an armbar. Right. Exactly. Oh, this, this, is, this is the fourth fight he finished with a rear naked choke. Yeah, like Hickson you, and his up, chokes. Yeah, yeah. Right, you know, you, they end up, you end up finding who you are. You know, and that's all come, I think, adding what is specifically your own. Adding your personality, adding who you are to the, to, to, to the dynamic being of you being a fighter. Right. You know, it's and, and and this is outside of combat athletics. It's the same thing with in, in any kind of sport. I mean, if you if you look at basketball players, there's you know how many people on the court, all doing the same exact thing, but they all have a different way of doing it. To the point where, like me as a hockey fan, I could look at a hockey. I could look at a hockey game. And I can I can tell you which ranger has the puck usually 
by the way they're skating. <laughs> you know what I mean? By the way the guy is skating, I can usually tell you who the, who the player is. Wow. I, I don't need to see the name and number on the jersey. I can tell by the way they're skating. Yeah. You know, and from their body style and things to that effect. They didn't, they, they're not playing a different form of hockey. They're not playing by different rules and different techniques or... It's just the way they play. Right. It's their style of hockey. Yeah. You know, and that and that's how we have to look at... We have to, it's the way we have to look at martial arts and stop looking at martial arts as if they were religions and stop looking at martial arts as if they were pristine Fabergé eggs that we can't touch in any kind of way. Right. You know what I mean? Unless, unless that's your goal. Right. If your goal is to create some sort of or become part of some sort of perfect thing, like you want to learn some obscure kung fu system and that's what you, then you know what? Like I say, go on with your bad self. Do what makes you happy. But if your goal, especially with JKD people, is to be this fundamentally sound, all-around good fighter, then get all the other crap out of your head and and, and and kind of plot out what you need to be safe and to be a good fighter and, 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 and work yourself. Work, work who you are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I think before we get out of here, I just wanted to mention something to you. Uh, so Francis Ngannou and John Jones potentially fighting at heavyweight is like the big news now. Although they're having some negotiation issues with the UFC because the UFC is very stingy on what they want to pay. But John Jones is willing to go up to heavyweight to fight Francis Ngannou. How crazy would that be? Is, is John Jones going to be able to pass a drug test? <laughs> well, hopefully if he does. But uh, that's going to be a very interesting fight. And, hey, that's a money fight. I mean, I think outside of Connor, if you want to look at some interesting stuff, man, John Jones moving up to heavyweight. I mean, it actually works out. It's for uh, either an interim title or a non-title fight. John is the, the title holder at light heavyweight, so he doesn't actually lose anything if he loses. Francis Ngannou is not the champ. It's just a fight that people want to see. So that would be amazing, man. Yeah, no, it, it would be, but I just hope they can pass the, the, the drug test. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, all right, I guys. Get, I just want to say thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Uh, we really appreciate all the support. Hope you guys are enjoying all the fantastic content we're putting out there for you guys. And, uh, of course, as always, if you guys have more ideas of things you want uh, Sean and I to do, uh, you can always let us know, both for the podcast and for our Patreon supporters. That is absolutely awesome. So thanks a lot. I had a really good time, Sean. You too, brother. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Cool, man. So that, All right, take see care. you next week, folks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our latest episode. Please help us get the word out there by sharing this and other episodes on your favorite social media platforms. If you're enjoying the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast, there are many ways in which you can support it. Go to dudesofkungfu.com support to find out how you can help your favorite Kung Fu podcast. We are currently using Patreon to automate great benefits to those who support the podcast. As a supporter of the Dudes, you'll get early access to episodes, as well as a number of other benefits based on your donation level. This includes in-depth topic lectures and even monthly live video conferences with the Dudes. Again, go to dudesofkungfu.com support to find out more about that.
As always, you can help support us in small ways as well. Give us a like at the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page and share links to episodes. If Twitter is your preferred social media outlet, you can follow the Dudes of Kung Fu there as well. Both Big Sean Madigan and yours truly are on Twitter too. Dudes of Kung Fu is now also on Instagram, so tag it along with the hashtag Dudes of Kung Fu whenever you post something related to the podcast. A great way to support the Dudes is to rate and review it on either the iTunes or Android app stores. The written reviews are immensely more helpful than just giving us a five-star rating. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, please write us at the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page. Please understand that neither Sean nor I can guarantee a response, but we will consider any serious suggestions. And finally, I ask that you help spread an open dialogue with other practitioners of martial arts. Chinese Kung Fu in particular has long since suffered from caustic political discourse, which can only change with you. Remember, the person you wholeheartedly disagree with doesn't love martial arts any less than you do. Take care, and thank you for supporting the Dudes of Kung Fu!